All right, the children can be dismissed right now if they can to the junior church, and the workers can be dismissed at this time. Hold, Hold that place in Zechariah, if you would, and also go to Mark chapter number 11. So we'll be in two places this morning, Zechariah chapter 9 and Mark chapter 11. What a blessing it is to be able to look at the portion of Scripture. It's amazing how far uh, we've come. Uh, Americans are getting more used to using these gadgets and different things. I know that for me, I wasn't really fond of the computers and all of the things that we have at our fingertips 24 years ago. When I came in, I thought that they were somewhat... Not a healthy thing for a pastor to be involved in. We didn't want any internet in the church. Uh, times have sure changed. And uh, finishing up um, the final project uh, yesterday for my writing, uh, 73 pages long. I'm sending it tonight by midnight. I wanted to send it to, to, um, to the, the people at West Coast Baptist College. But I want to tell you that I'm sure I'm glad there's for computers. I'm sure glad that there, there's the, uh, the programs because they just put things in order uh, footnotes and all of that, to do it in a certain, a certain style and all that, whatever they require, the computer does it for you. And so it sure is a little easier, really no excuses why we can't study and learn a little bit more in this, in this kind of culture of education. But I think it's important for us to grasp a little bit of what was coming uh, and what the people were looking to when Zechariah wrote these words. And uh, I know that uh, you have been thinking about Palm Sunday, the the children are going to get palm branches in a little bit to explain a little bit more of what happened on on Palm Sunday and what it's all about. We didn't cover it in Sunday school. We covered what the most needed subject today, I believe, is for the men, is for integrity. But I think it's important for us now to zoom in, if we can, for the next half an hour uh, on this particular subject of this joyful anticipation of Jesus. And um, I think there is a joyful anticipation that he is coming again. Uh, We're looking for that. It is our hope why we work, why we strive to be what we should be, because we know that there's going to be a time when he's coming again. But before the first advent, there were those Old Testament prophets that actually wrote concerning the coming of our Lord. But let me just ask you the question, what would you do with your time if you knew that you had just one week to live, and that's all you had was seven days, and you would meet your maker, I think it would be a change of behavior. For you, you'd like to see some things, perhaps. You'd like to do some things. You'd like to settle some things with people uh, in your mind. Um, I think this was the place uh, into the mindset of Jesus Christ during that week uh, that he came into Jerusalem. We also have the mindset of those who put their trust in Jesus Christ as their king. And so as we touch upon some of the events of this particular week that took place this morning, I want us to focus on the main thing, and that is that Jesus was entering into Jerusalem because he knew that there would be a death. He knew that there would be a burial. And he knew that there would be a resurrection. And I think it's important for us to remember for just a moment uh, the triumphant entrance that he came into Jerusalem riding upon a donkey. And then there was, of course, the Last Supper was this particular week. This week you'll be talking about it. There'll be a lot in social media that will be putting things out. I think sometimes good short films on this subject is a healthy thing. Last night 
I was surprised to see Channel 27 had the story of the Ten Commandments on there where Moses was depicted as a strong Hebrew man and uh, how he had to go across the desert. And, of course, there he found uh, and began to help with uh, Jethro's um, sheep and so on and, and uh, all the things that went on in, in his life. And then the burning bush scenario, I, it's just amazing how Hollywood at that time even though we may not like that story the way they did it, um, there's a lot of Bible truth that was actually being presented there of, of what Moses went through. And uh, I think you're going to see a lot of that this week. I remember as a little boy uh, here in Madison, Wisconsin, and, and remember the Easter season, the resurrection season, I remember watching film after film on television. And back then we only had like three stations, you know. Now you can have 150. If you really want more, you can. And so, but it's interesting because it gave us our mindset that we're living in a culture at that time, there was a moral compass, and listen to me, we've only had about 80 years of good peace in this country, we've had about 70 years of prosperity, and and it may come to an end real quick, like, we don't know what's going to happen, we see that there are some things of concern, we could talk about Ukraine, we could talk about China and so on, but what about America? What about the, the, the mindset of the woke community? By the way, wokeness produces weakness that will lead us to a war. And that's just plain truth. You know, and I, and I think that if we want to have strength again, we're going to have to push away this nonsense that you can change a person's gender. Boy, isn't that something? You're telling God that he didn't create that. That's horrible. And that's a horrible position to be in. You say, well, the institution does, but I, and I don't do that. Well, then get out of that institution. And start thinking about Christian education and thinking about what you can do to help out our, 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 our community. And by the way, if there were sacrifices 70 years ago, don't you think there needs to be sacrifices now? You think the Civil War and the 23,000 I heard on one day died in this nation, brother against brother? Do you think that sacrifice was all given to us so that we could actually live so loosely? No, dear friend. No, and, and I want to tell you that we're entering into some serious times. And as we're thinking about this, we look at the Lord Jesus and what he went through and the Last Supper and the agony in the garden. Remember that particular portion. I know that, I know that these are films that you can watch on TV this week, and you can zoom in a little bit more if you'd like to. Um, you can actually, as a family, sit down one night this week and have devotions together and talk about it. It'd be wonderful to be able to show up uh, or or put on the screen of your television. Many of you have smart TVs where you can do that. Some of you don't, and I understand, but there are ways that you can actually guide your family and let them know what this week is all about. Now, I'm not really uh, into religion, to be honest with you. Uh, I know that that term uh, might just irritate somebody, but but I'm I'm, I'm into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so, who do I identify with? What is my identity? It's a good question. Do you identify as a Catholic, as a Baptist, as a Lutheran? A lot of times people will say that. I'll say, how are you doing? Well, I'm Catholic, or I'm Lutheran, or I'm Baptist, you know? And and really, you should say, I'm in Christ. You know, I don't know what you are, but I'm in Christ because I want to identify with him. Remember, he said, I will build my church. So he's saying, I have an identity. And that's the ones that assemble in my name that come out of religion, out of relationship, into, are, are out, of a, out of the world system, into a relationship with, with me. Jesus is expressing that. 
Upon this rock, I will build my church. Upon this rock, stating the fact, the truth, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. If we think that that rock was the Catholic Church or the Pope, we've been deceived. So we have to go back and say what Jesus was conveying to his disciples, stimulating their, their conscience by saying, who do you say I am? And them saying, well, you know, there's all kinds of thoughts. And they say, who do you say that I am? It would be a good question to ask yourself. Who do you say Jesus is? And Jesus was looking for what Peter said, that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this particular truth was they're identifying then to pick up their cross and follow him. So we look, turn to our people we work with, people we come in fellowship with or contact with during the week, and we want to be able to say, that they're in Christ. I saw Jesus in you. Not I saw the Catholic Church in you. Not I saw the Lutheran Church in you. Not I saw the Baptist Church in you. No, I saw, I saw fundamental Baptist in you. No, I saw Jesus in you. I saw Christ in you. This was the desire. And so the agony in the garden and the betrayal of the betrayal by Judas, we understand this. And this is all things that we'll be thinking about this week. The trials and in the, the 24 hours that Jesus had been interrogated six times without one witness standing up in his defense, that's what Jesus Christ went through. He went through the crucifixion, which involved physical beatings and emotional as well as psychological trauma, and Jesus was scourged. And that really is cause to be scourged, the Bible says. The Bible says in Matthew 27, 26, then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged, means to whip Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And so according to the Roman custom, scourging preceded crucifixion. The scourge was made of a leather strip, strips, if you would, which were attached to sharp pieces of metal or other substances like bone. We know that with Jesus himself that no bones were broken, but he was pierced, he was wounded, he was basically crushed. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse number 6, the Bible says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off my hair. And I did not, I did not my face, I, I hid my face from them in shame and spitting. And so he's basically saying that he took it. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. The Bible says in Isaiah 50, verse number 6, I was reading a while back in the book that Philip Yancey was writing regarding, the book was called The Jesus I Never Knew. And it was regarding the shame that Jesus bore of being publicly humiliated. This is how it read. It said, Calvary, in a memoir of the years before World War II, Pierre Van Paysen tells of an act of humiliation by Nazi uh, soldiers as they stormed troopers, uh, as they stormed, who had seized an elderly Jewish rabbi and dragged him to the headquarters. In the far end of the same room, two colleagues were beating another Jew to death. But the captors of the rabbi decided to have a little bit of fun with this man, so they stripped him of all of his clothes. And they commanded that he preach the sermon that he would actually be preaching the Sabbath day in the synagogue coming up the next day. The rabbi asked if he could wear his cap, and the Nazis said, yeah, that would be, make it more fun, they said, and they added it as a joke. 
The trembling rabbi proceeded to deliver, in a raspy voice, hurt within, his sermon on what it means to walk humbly before God. And all the while being poked and prodded by the hooting of the Nazis, and all while hearing the last cries of his neighbor at the end of the room. The story goes on to say, when I read the gospel accounts of the imprisonment and the torture and the execution of Jesus, I think of that naked rabbi standing in humiliation in the police station and the Nazis mocking him. And after after watching scores of movies on the subject and reading the gospels over and over, I still cannot fathom the indignity the shame that Jesus endured, and that was endured by God's Son on the earth, stripped naked, flogged, spat on, struck in the face, garlanded with thorns. And I think it gives us a little bit of an idea of what Jesus went through before he was put into a tomb, before he took his last breath, the psychological, the emotional, and the physical beatings of somebody who was innocent. But he took it for you. And he took it for me. Every time I do something against God, I remember what Jesus did for me. And I'm so thankful that I don't have to pay for my sins because I would be in big trouble. I don't have enough money to pay for that. I don't have enough ability or personality or character to do that. Jesus was the only one that could satisfy God. And he did that for you and I. Makes us a little bit more serious and understanding when Zechariah wrote the words, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, the king comes unto thee. He is just, having salvation. Lowly and riding upon the ass, upon the colt of the foal, or the colt, a colt, the foal of an ass. So the great minor prophet Zechariah cries out in these verses. I did studying years ago on Zechariah and the minor prophets, and I did a series here at our church concerning Zechariah. Interesting individual. He's the major of the minor prophets as far as that league is concerned. His name means Jehovah remembers. The total prophecy, prophetic ministry of Zechariah lasted about two years in contrast with Haggai, whose total recordings of the ministry occupied only four months. There are 16 Old Testament writings, uh, writing prophets, I should say, four major prophets. There was Isaiah and Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel. There are 12 minor prophets. That's Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. But Zechariah was the son of Jehoiada, And he was stoned to death at the command of Joash, king of Judah, because he rebuked Joash of turning and worshiping Baal instead of the true God. The Old Testament prophets would sometimes jump from event to event sometimes in your reading. And we can see that in this particular passage where we would say, how does this line up with the New Testament? Well, it does. But I think that there are valleys that happen sometimes. It's called mountain peaks of prophecy. It is as if they see a mountain, they begin to describe it, and then they look beyond the mountain and describe what it looks like there. But in the valley, there's all kinds of things that are actually happening and that will happen. 
And so this prophecy, of course, was fulfilled six days prior to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to turn over to Zechariah, or turn over to Mark chapter 11 with me. I want to read to you a few verses here. The story picks up in verse number 1 of Mark chapter 11. It says, And when they came nigh to Jerusalem, unto Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sends forth two of his disciples, and he saith unto them, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as you be entered into it, you shall find a colt tied, whereon never man sat. Loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do you do this? You say that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And they went their way and found the colt tied by the door without in a place where two ways met, and they loosed him. And certain of them stood there, said unto them, What do ye, losing, loosing the, the colt? And they said unto them, Even as Jesus has commanded, that they let, and, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off of trees, and strayed them in the way. And they that went before, and they that followed, cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem into the temple when he had looked around about all things, and now the eventide was come. He went unto Bethany with the twelve. It's amazing because the New Testament gives us the understanding that the Lord Jesus Christ enters in riding upon the colt of an ass. It's amazing to me that the people would actually take the time of cutting down branches and laying them down so that the Lord Jesus could follow the branches and be able to say, you know, this is the king. That's what their desire to show they were saying Hosanna to him. But among this particular prophecy of Zechariah that's fulfilled here in Mark chapter 11, verse number 1, he tells us to rejoice and shout because the king is coming. And the prophecy that the Redeemer is about to come on the scene would even make anyone shout for joy. And this is the same Redeemer that others spoke of in the Bible, the Old Testament, most in the Old and the New, mentions that he is the Redeemer. In Job chapter 19, verse number 25, it says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Isaiah chapter 59, verse number 20, reads this way, And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. And other texts speak of this event. I think this place that's mentioned in Zechariah is about 510 years before it happened. A long time uh, they were waiting for him to come. I think that those that were there that day that were looking to Jesus were full of joy. Because, you see, he was a king of a different kind. For some reason, this Lord of Lords and this King of Kings decided that he was going to come to the poor and to the needy, to the common man. I like what this particular poem says. It's from a long time ago. It says, Lift up your heads, pilgrims aweary. See days approach, now crimson the sky. 
Night shadows flee, and your beloved, awaiting with longing, at last draws nigh. O blessed hope, O blissful promise, filling our hearts with rapture divine, O day of days, hail thy appearing, thy transcendent glory forever shall shine. What a beautiful thought to know that Jesus Christ was going to change everything. But I want to give to you in the next few minutes just an understanding. First of all, in the passage, if you look at verse number 9 of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, there are three things I want to quickly give to you, and I'll I'll go through rather quickly. Number one is the character of our king. Let's look at his character for just a moment. The Bible says that he is just. He himself is perfectly righteous. The Bible says in Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the day comes, saith the Lord, that I will raise up David, a righteous branch. I'll raise up unto David a righteous branch, and the king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. The Bible says that he is just, and this means that there is no sin in this king. He is a sinless king. The Bible says also in Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 15, For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So it goes back to understanding that we are made righteous in Christ, not by our own deeds. He is just. I was reading one of the commentaries on it, and he, re- he said this. It means righteous. An attribute constantly given to the Messiah in connection with salvation. He does not merely pardon by con- convining at sin, but he justifies by becoming the Lord our righteousness fulfiller, so that not merely mercy... But justice requires the justification of the sinner who by faith becomes one with Christ. God's justice is not set aside by the sinner's salvation, but is magnified and made honorable by it. Someone else, I read this from someplace else, and it said this, In vain we look through the entire biography of Jesus for a single strain or a slightest shadow on his moral character. There never lived a more harmless being on the earth. He injured nobody. He took advantage of nobody. He never spoke an improper word. He never committed a wrong action. He exhibited a uniform elevation above the objects, opinions, and pleasures, and passions of this world, and disregard to riches, displays, fame, or the favor of men. No vice that has a name, can be thought of in connection with Jesus Christ. Ingenuous malignity looks in vain for the faintest trace of self-seeking in his motives. Sensuality shrinks abashed, abashed from his celestial purity. Falsehood can leave no stain on him who is incarnate truth. Injustice is forgotten beside his errorless equity, that he was impeccable, that he was pure, and he still is. He is Jesus, high and lifted up, and he is the one we need to look to. Why should we rejoice at his first coming? 
because he is the just one. He was the just Jesus. And the Christ, the just one, desires to impute his righteousness unto all that will come to him. He has enough righteousness for you. You don't have enough for yourself. You must have his. He did this by taking our punishment. And the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt of an ass, he was saying, here I come. I take your punishment for you. This is what a perfect, righteous sacrifice has to offer you and me, taking our penalty of sin upon him. And why? Why should they not cheer and shout, Hosanna the king? The king comes unto thee, for he is just. He is just both in principle and in practice. Truth and uprightness are fixed on his throne because he is the king of kings. In Revelation chapter 15, verse number 3 reads this way, As they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works. Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways, thou king of the saints. Then there's this compassion, having salvation, that he does not throw away anybody that comes to him. I don't know where you've been, but Jesus has known that for years. Why don't you come to him? He's the one that can help you. He is the only one who has the power over sin and death. So he is the only one that can offer out a pure heart and a salvation for all who come to him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the whole world, by the way, the whole world through him might be saved. He is meek and lowly. This is really one of the points that really hit me. That as I was writing this sermon, and I was thinking about how that he is so meek, no imperial chariots like Alexander, no centurions of soldiers like Caesar. It was just him riding along on the colt of an ass. The Bible says in Mark or in Matthew chapter eleven twenty nine, "Take my yoke upon you and learn of me." For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest in my souls. I think this is the attraction of Jesus, was that humility. Honestly, to be thinking about it, because he came and he was crying out to the sinner to come to him. Didn't have all kinds of educational people with him. Had no board of directors. He just had 12 men that he sat with daily and taught them. And it was the common man, the ordinary man. This is what makes it so attractive, is that Christianity really is not for the elite. It's not really for the educated. Oh, it is for them, but it's for the common person. There's an old song they used to sing back in the 60s, and I don't know who sang it. I'm just a common man with a common van. My, My dog doesn't even have a pedigree or something like that. You say, well, that's kind of a weird thing to bring in such a secular song. But you know what? That's the person who Jesus is calling. That common person. That person like you and me. We try to go to work every single day and do the best we can. We want to raise our kids and bring our children up the best way we can. We want to be honest. We want to pay our taxes. We just want to live at peace. We just want to be able to have some things and, and be able to grow some things and, and, and provide for people and 
It's all we want to do. And so this was an attraction of the common. The common person followed Jesus. Tell me another story. Tell me a parable. Jesus spoke. And these are the people that followed him. That day when they took those palm branches down and flung it in front of them, it was done by just the average people. Children were there crying out, men and women from the city. You know, a palm branch isn't very big, but a palm branch actually reminds us of victory. The Old Testament talks about the the, the tabernacle of booths and how they would weave in willows and palms together so they could make houses, if you would, and they would go from their places of dwelling into those booths for a while. Because there was sorrow and there was victory in life. There's valley and there's mountaintops. But you see, when Jesus comes, there's just victory. There was no willow trees. It was taking that wonderful truth that there is victory in Jesus Christ. It's mentioned in the book of Revelation also. I think when we talk about the palm branch, we think of Hosanna. We think of Palm Sunday when Jesus came in. But he came for you and for me. And I really believe that God can save the rich man. And I believe that God can save the intellectual man. But it just seems like the common man is more apt to trust him and to follow him and to say, here I am, Lord. I don't have anything to offer you other than my heart. If you'll take it and receive it. And so we see then, number two, in the verse, verse number 10, the nature of the kingdom. And if you look at verse number 10, I, I think it's important for us to, to read this. I, I think you can see it in here. I'm almost done. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and battle, and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. And his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. I think if we were to think of it a song from sea, to, from sea to Shining Sea, we would enter this into our country, and people are trying to come in like crazy. They're coming in, and they're thinking that this is the kingdom of God. It is, it is not, although there are more freedoms here. By the way, where the gospel's preached is where there's more freedom. You know, I, I'm so thankful what's happening in Menominee Falls, that, that church is doing a great job and praying. And I heard this last week that three Christian board members now have taken over because of the elections in Menominee Falls. That's the gospel in action. That's God's grace in action. Put somebody in with it has a, has a moral compass again, instead of thinking it's all about money, not thinking about the next generation. So I think the thing that you see here most in verse number 10, I stuck out to me, is speak peace unto the heathen. He shall speak peace unto them. Who is the Prince of Peace? Well, is this talking about Jesus coming in to Jerusalem on a donkey? Well, absolutely. Is it talking about the millennial kingdom? I believe it is. But I believe also it's talking about the entrance of Jesus Christ, that he would bring peace. He shall speak peace unto the heathen. Oh, what peace Jesus brings to the heart that is full of tension and despair. By the way, if you've, got, if you've got confrontation now with everybody around you, guess who the problem is? The problem is you. Confrontation, if it's not dealt with, um, I'm talking about self-confrontation. 
Because the person, if you don't do self-confrontation, you're going to be living alone. It's a whole other message. I've got to keep going. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 says, For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Isaiah 26, 3 says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed upon thee, because he trusts in him. Isaiah 57, verse number 19, I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is afar off, and him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. So that is a frame, the, the, I, I frame the speech in thy words, and my messengers will bring that to you. Peace comes from Jesus. I think it's universal here, from sea, of course, to the river, to the ends of the earth, is talking about universal. And this kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom of the Lamb is for every nation and every tongue. Because Revelation chapter 5, verse number 9 says... They sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof. Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred, by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Revelation 14, verse number 6, And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation, every kindred, every tongue and people. I think it's perpetual, because the Bible speaks of it in Psalm 145, verse number 13, thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. In Daniel chapter 4, verse number 3, it goes on to say his dominion is from generation to generation, and his wonders, and it talks about how his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. In Daniel chapter 7, verse number 27, the Bible says, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 11, for, I, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A man by the name of Oscar Wilde wrote a poem. Didn't live very long, from 1854 to 1900. He passed away, but he, he wrote this. Ah, happy they whose heart can break and peace of pardon win. Who else may man make straight his paths and cleanse his soul from sin? And how else but through a broken heart may the Lord Christ enter in? And sometimes it takes a tragedy and a brokenness until where you then will completely give God everything. It's a time of full surrender. It's a time where you say, I know I've accepted you as my Lord, and now I am fully surrendering to you. Every heart. So peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. But let your heart not be troubled, neither let it be afraid. John chapter 14, verse number 27. So the character of the king. He's different. He's the king of the common man. He's your king, if you desire for him to be. He wants to change you. He wants to mold you into the image of his dear son. He wants you to follow him, not for his benefit, but for yours, so that he can bless you and he can give you a life of peace and effectiveness. And you don't just have to exist. You can actually be effective and help other people. Find your purpose. 
and be what God wants you to be. And then in closing, there's the blessings of his reign. I can't help but read into this passage and see that the Bible is basically talking about how that he will have peace and so on. And the benefits of it. The Lord Jesus Christ comes and he brings to us then that humility and that meekness that we need to portray. I think there's a great joy when we think about the first coming. But there's also a great joy thinking about the second coming. The Bible says in Isaiah 61, verse number 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, for my soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garment of salvation, and he hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. It's amazing how that the Bible is describing what Jesus does for us. He takes his robe of righteousness and he puts it over our shoulders so that we can experience his righteousness instead of trying to do our own. This was different than what the Pharisees were teaching. This is different than what religion, religion teaches you. If you go to a church where they're telling you you've got to abide by all these rules in order to be saved, then tell them they're in error. Because you simply just need to come to Jesus Christ, repent from your sin, and turn to Jesus, and become in Christ rather than in your religion. It's important for us to remember that there's also the eternal security. And in closing, I must talk about it for a moment. To be honest with you, and I'm going to be really frank, I am tired of people starting churches with no real strong foundation. It's hurting people. I'm so thankful for Bible-believing churches that hold up the Bible and say, this is where we get our doctrine from. When I was writing on bibliology, I was discussing that this is where everything else flows from. My scriptures are the fountain where I can look into it and I can see, and all the other doctrines come from that one. So I, I do get upset when somebody uses a different translation of the Bible these days. Because because they're taking away from the, the authenticity and the work of what went into to give us the Bible in the English language. Now, that might be something I could actually talk about later on. But as I was talking about bibliology in this, I couldn't help but think about how important the Bible is and how Baptist churches give you an acrostate and the first B for Baptist, when you're writing Baptist, the Bible is the authority and the rule of your practice. In other words, everything comes from the scriptures. Not tradition. Not what someone thought would be good and healthy. But the scriptures. If it's not in the scriptures, we don't do it. And so I was thinking that I'm not embarrassed that I'm a Baptist. I'd be ashamed if I wasn't a Baptist. Now you can go ahead and say, well, he's weird. Go ahead and say that. I don't care. I'm going to stand before God someday soon. And I want to tell you, that the Baptist church has it right in many ways. Autonomy of the local church, priesthood of the believer, two ordinances, the two offices, individual soul liberty, saved membership. We, we have it. But then Satan gets in there and tries to divide and tries to dilute, try to depress. And so... What I'm telling you this morning is so important because I really believe 
that a church that has the Bible as the authority will tell you the truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of those truths that we believe in is eternal security. That once you have come to Christ, you are saved. Once you're his child, you're his forever. Let me tell you something. You know how much damage it does to someone? Just think if you had a child. You said, well, you were our child at one time, but now you're not because of the mistakes you made. You think that child would be hurt? Let me tell you something. I have a mother and I have a father. I have a mother and a father. They are my parents, and I'm their child, and nothing will ever change that. And so it is with my Father in heaven. He gave us a portion of Scripture to back that up. So I want to read it to you in closing. As we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. That you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless thee, and multiply, I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, and wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, that we might have strong consolation or encouragement who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made in high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. FBI is one of my favorite, FBI, F.B. Meyer is one of my favorite authors, and I put him into a lot of the writings I was involved in this last couple of years. This particular passage, he wrote this little illustration. Epi Meyer wrote about two Germans who wanted to climb the Matterhorn. They hired three guides and began their ascent at the steepest and most slippery part. The men roped themselves together in this, this order, the guide first, then the traveler, then the guide, then a traveler, then a guide. And they had gone only a little way up the side when the last man lost his footing. He was held up temporarily by the other four because each had a toehold in the niches that they had cut in the ice. But then the next man slipped and he pulled down the two that were above him. The only one to stand firm was the first guide who had driven the spike deep into the ice because he held his ground, all the men beneath him regained their footing. F.B. Meyer concluded by his story. By drawing a spiritual application, he said, I am like the one of those men who slipped, but thank God, I am bound to a living partnership with Jesus Christ. And because he stands and he holds, I will never perish. His strength is keeping me. It is his power 
not my own. Eternal security is real because of what Jesus has done, not because of what you can do as far as your performance. It is because of Christ. He came in that day to be the common man's king. Is he your king? I hope he is because he is. Every head bowed and every eye closed this morning. I know I went a little longer. Maybe you just take the time of just pondering what we talked about today. I know the sermon was hard to follow. Some of you probably have thought about everything but what I was saying. But maybe some people this morning saw the Lord Jesus in a different light. You know that he is true. You know that he is your God. He is your king. Maybe this morning you would say, I'm saved, but I'm not where I need to be spiritually. Then go to the Lord. He's calling you. It's like Samuel getting up and running to the priest when he should be running to Jesus. Finally, the priest says to him, go to Jesus. Go to, go to Jesus. Maybe this morning you're not even sure of your salvation, then why don't you come? This is an old-fashioned church with an old-fashioned altar. And if you need to come, you can come. And maybe it's time for you to be able to give your heart to the Lord. and Say, here I am, Lord. I open up my heart to you. Then we give you time to do that. If you want to learn more about baptism, come forward. We'll show you. It's for the believer first. First they were saved and then they were baptized. Maybe you need a little bit more of an understanding of a local church. Why don't you come if you want to join our church? We'll help you with that. Whatever it is, maybe you need to come this morning. The piano's going to play in just a moment. We want you to be able to come. With every head bowed and every eye closed, would you just stand to your feet? No one looking around this morning. Elaine, if you could come to the piano and play this morning. Elaine Tro, if you could come. I'm going to pray, and as soon as I'm done, the piano's going to play softly. And if you need to come, please do. This would be a wonderful thing to remember Palm Sunday in a way where it was full surrender. Maybe there's something else, a burden that you've been carrying. Why don't you come? He's meek and lowly. He will not push you away. He will take the burden from you. Maybe it's you just know you need to be saved. Why don't you come? Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct in the invitation. In Jesus' name, amen.